Well, good morning and happy new year. It was, <laughs> it was uh, good to, to be away uh, with uh, family, and uh, we certainly enjoyed our time there. Uh, <clears throat> continue praying for Jill as she does, uh, feels about the same, but um, came down with a, another cold, so <laughs> she's still uh, not quite 100%. Uh, please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the, the good news that our sins have been uh, more than cleansed. They have been completely atoned for uh, by the, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of his resurrection uh, in that we experience that same power through faith and the working of your spirit in our lives. We thank you as well for our adoption as children uh, the Spirit himself bearing witness with us uh, that we are your children. We who at one time were your enemies and were by nature children of wrath and destined for destruction, you have snatched uh, from that path of destruction and have placed us on the path that leads to life by following the one who is the life, the way and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it is a new year. And we look forward to what you will do uh, in this world that you have created, in the life that you have called us to live, and in the places where you have placed us, in our homes, our schools, our families, our communities, our neighbors as well. Father, we pray for your guidance and for your direction. And to that end, we turn our attention uh, to Peter's letter, uh, instructions, Lord God, to Christians living in uncertain times, Christians challenged with regard to uh, practicing their faith, living out their commitment to Jesus Christ in a world, Father, that is at, on one hand, perhaps totally indifferent to the meaning of Christ, and on the other extreme, uh, out and out hostile toward it. So help us, Lord God, to trust in the power of your spirit, to trust in the, the goodness and the graciousness and the righteousness of your Son, to help us walk uh, wisely, but also courageously uh, into this new year. Whatever uh, happens, Lord God, we pray for our nation, that it, as it faces uncertain times, uh, we, Lord God, would re be reminded that we are citizens, certainly of uh, this earth, but more importantly, citizens of another kingdom, of a more durable and permanent kingdom. And it is uh, to that nation, that kingdom we belong, even while we uh, pilgrim here temporarily. So we pray now for the power of your spirit to be at work in us and in this time. Uh, speak to us, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I mentioned that it is uh, the new year. I've, I've never been one uh, to make New Year's resolutions. I'm not against uh, making New Year's resolutions. In fact, I have a great deal of respect for people who make them and keep them. Um, I've learned, however, uh, and maybe this is one reason why I don't make resolutions, is that there's a really vast difference between making uh, a New Year's resolution and keeping it, uh, which is probably witnessed by uh, not so much in our home, but maybe in other homes, uh, you know, fitness equipment that get used as a coat rack as opposed to a treadmill. Uh, gym memberships that start out with great enthusiasm, and then toward the end you're sort of looking to sell it to somebody else. Um, but there is a sense in which a, a resolution requires not only the determination to make it, but the discipline to keep it, especially 
when keeping a particular resolution uh, puts you at odds with the surrounding culture. And that really is the reality that is facing the readers of Peter's two letters. Um, when you think of the, the audience that Peter is writing to, it's primarily, uh, there are some uh, Jewish believers in, his, uh, in the churches that he addresses in these various regions. But his primary audience, the majority of the people he's writing to are Gentiles, they're non-Jews. They have come from pagan backgrounds. And so his aim and his goal is to help them think like Christians, to think Christianly about not only their relationship with God, but then their relationship with the world at large. Because in the context of the letters, we'll, we'll, as we walk through it, they are facing opposition uh, from the world around them. They, they had resolved, these believers did, through hearing the gospel, they had resolved to, to follow Jesus. But to keep that resolution, it caused them to suffer abuse, verbally and physically, from people that were once their neighbors, uh, their friends, and perhaps even their family. And so Peter is concerned that in the face of this opposition, these new believers might wither and shrink back from following Christ. And, but he encourages them not to lose faith, to hold on to their newfound trust in Christ, regardless of what happens to them. And he's going to, as you walk through the letter, you're going to see he's going to hold up Jesus as a supreme example of someone who suffered greatly because of his desire to fulfill God's will and obey God, and that Jesus is this example, our ultimate example, what it means to, to live well, to suffer well, to die well, to serve well, to love well, to be in the world, yet live with a mindset of one who is committed and knows that they are headed toward uh, another kingdom. The letter itself, uh, both the letters probably are written from Rome, the first one around 62 or 63 AD, just to sort of give you some historical background, and it's addressed to Christians uh, living in various parts of what is today modern Turkey. Now, there's a map that uh, I'll show here. I don't know if, it'll, if the resolution will be good enough to show you. If not, you can look at it in the back of your Bibles if your Bible has a map. So you can see where the, the, the Christians are in this northern part. There's, there's Pontus there. There's Bithynia just you know, on, the, on the top part of the screen. There's Cappadocia, the, the purple part is Asia, uh, the purple part rather is Galatia, and then you have Asia there. So he starts in Pontus, works his way through Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and ends up in Bithynia. It's, this is what's called a circular letter. In other words, it's meant to be circulated among the, the churches in those regions. And the, the, the courier is likely a man named Silvanus uh, that uh, Peter refers to, who was also likely the secretary who wrote down Peter's words. And he was responsible for basically making sure the letter was circulated among these churches. And as I said before, most, uh, most scholars believe that while uh, the majority of, uh, let's say, some of Peter's readers were, were Jews who came to believe in Christ, the vast majority of them were, were Gentiles, that he is helping to think Christianly. And it's interesting the way that Peter re refers to them. He begins by saying that, the, in other words, an apostle, so he establishes his credentials. Uh, and then he refers to them as the elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, some translations may have the elect exiles of the diaspora or the chosen uh, people of the, the diaspora. That, 
those terms are important in terms of establishing a baseline from which Peter is going to work the rest of his letter. We have to understand that what he's doing here is laying a foundation for how we think about God and ourselves, and that's going to influence how we behave. So it's very similar to when we, if you, I know your memory is really good, you're going to remember that series in 1 John that we did. If Peter can get them to think rightly, he knows he can get them to behave rightly. So he calls them elect exiles, which is a term that has its roots in the history of Israel. Remember, under the Old Covenant, uh, Israel was referred to as God's elect. The Jews were his chosen people. Um, when Jesus comes and establishes the New Covenant, he makes it possible for Gentiles, non-Jews, to be included among this number, among God's chosen people, so that under the New Covenant, the church expands to include Jews and Gentiles, and it becomes, we are members of it, this new community of, of men and women uh, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The church now is God's chosen people, and he refers to them as exiles. They, there's a sense of separation that we will feel with our own culture because of having been uh, chosen by God to follow Christ to be salt and light, there is a sense in which while we live in the place where God has dispersed us, whether it's in Bergen County or Passaic County or some other part of New Jersey, we are still not necessarily full members, if you will, of the place where we live. Our values, our way of thinking, the way that we behave is what sets us apart from the rest of those who have not made that commitment to Christ, who are not part of that community. So when you feel a disconnect, when you're at work or you're at school, and there are conversations that take place, or movies or podcasts or songs that are discussed that leave you sort of on edge, I'm not really sure I want to get involved with that, that disconnect is a direct result of, of having been set apart by God to be part of his people. That's a normal and natural thing. And Peter wants us to be comfortable with that discomfort. This is why he also refers to them as members of the dispersion. This is also rooted in the history of Israel. Because within Judaism itself, someone who is part of the dispersion being scattered was considered to be anyone who lived outside the Holy Land. If you lived outside of, so you take for instance, if you lived outside of Bergen County, God forbid you should live in Queens, right? Or North Massapequa, where I grew up, right? Bergen County would be the Holy Land. North Massapequa would be like the outermost parts of the earth. Right? You don't want to go to Long Island. You want to stay here. So, but in Peter's mind, in Peter's thinking, his readers aren't exiles. They aren't part of the dispersion because of their ethnicity, because of their race. They are exiles. They are part of the dispersion because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And God has scattered them in these particular regions around Asia for the express purpose of bringing him glory and declaring his praises to the nations. So he wants them to know from the start, whatever discomfort you feel as a believer in Christ, wherever God has placed you as a result of your faith in Christ, 
is part of his divine plan for bringing the knowledge of Christ into all the world. And to be comfortable with that and to be comfortable with being regarded and treated and feeling like those who don't necessarily belong where they are. Uh, one scholar uh, describes it this way, that the believers in 1 Peter are the new people of God, but as God's people, they are disenfranchised, discriminated against, and mistreated. Their home is not on earth, but heaven. N.T. Wright says something very similar when he refers to the church as a colony of heaven here on earth. There is this natural disconnect that we are going to feel with our own culture, maybe within our own family, within our own circle of friends. If they aren't committed to following Christ, we are going to feel a different. We're going to think differently. Not because we are necessarily morally better, you understand, but it is simply because we have entered into a relationship with the one who makes us good and righteous and holy. So that anyone who follows Jesus then is an elect exile of the dispersion. Even if we're not mistreated, even if we don't feel or necessarily are disenfranchised or discriminated against, we're still outcasts. So the, the very start of Peter's letter, both this greeting in verses 1 and 2, and then next week when we look at the, the, the larger part of the introduction, 3 to 12, he's laying a very careful and sure theological foundation before he moves into the practical application of it. If you're a student of the Bible, and I know that you are, if you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians and you read 1 Peter, you will see that there's a great similarity between the two letters. Where in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul lays out the theological basis for what God has done in and among his people. And then in 4 to 6, he lays out the practical implications of that. Peter does the same thing, but he condenses everything Paul says in Ephesians 1 to 3 right here in chapter 1. Because as soon as he gets to verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, therefore, right? Prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. So he lays a steep firm theological foundation before he moves into the practical. And he wants them to know that that sound theological foundation is absolutely essential for how we are to live and approach and understand not only how we engage with the world, but the things that happen to us. To understand that our values, because of our relationship with God, because he has chosen to adopt us as his own, our values are going then to be different. Our way of living is going to be different. Our way of thinking is going to be different. The way we look at the world is going to be filtered through the lens of the gospel. Think about this. It's hard perhaps to, to sort of get into that mindset, but if you're looking at Peter's audience, these Gentiles who have grown up among pagan religions, uh, worshiping the, the various gods of either Rome or Greece, or even whatever uh, local gods that were worshipped at that time. Because Peter is writing to a group of people who are undergoing some kind of mistreatment, maybe out-and-out -out persecution, it would be very easy for his Gentile readers, and even his Jewish readers, to think, I've done something wrong. The gods are angry with me. I have somehow taken a misstep. And so I have to begin then to act more righteously, 
more morally. I have to be very, very careful about what I say and do so that the gods will no longer be angry with me and my life will be better. And Peter says, remove that thinking from your heart and mind entirely. Because sometimes the things that happen to you, he's going to refer to this in the next section, the various trials that happen to you, the inconveniences and the discomforts you feel, whether it's tension on the job, whether it's an illness, whether it's tension within your own family or your own marriage, whether it's out-and-out opposition from those who are hostile to the gospel, Peter says that is a natural outworking of what it means to follow Christ. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you, he says, because all of that is designed to prove the genuineness and the worth and the value and the preciousness of your faith, that you will emerge from these things like gold that is refined in the fire. I mean, think about it. Peter's audience was far less educated, far less wealthy, and far less socially, economically, and politically powerful than are we. We're better educated by far than the most educated person in Peter's audience. We have more wealth than they do. We have at least some social, some economic power, even some political power to influence the culture around us. But that doesn't mean that we won't be disenfranchised or discriminated or mistreated because of our faith. It just gives us more ways of dealing with that reality. But if that's the case, if we're going to be discriminated against, if we're going to be disenfranchised, if we're going to be mistreated because of Christ, then why do it? Why go against the flow? Why cut against the grain? Why keep following Jesus when following him puts us at risk of being mocked and marginalized and knocked about by the world? Peter answers that question in verse 2. We must keep following Jesus, he says, because we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We're going to unpack what that means as we move forward. But know this from the start. What Peter is saying here is very foundational to everything that he says moving on, that every person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, every person of the Trinity is committed to helping us follow Christ and to stay faithful to him, to stay loyal to him. He says that from eternity, God the Father determined to create us, and more than that, to save us from our sin. And that he does this by sending God the Holy Spirit. We sang about it in our song. Right? He, the Spirit comes. We are spiritually dead. He resurrects us spiritually. He makes us alive. He regenerates us. Opens our ears and our heart to hear, to respond to the gospel. The gospel which tells us that God sent his one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die the death that we should have died so that we could live the life that we were meant to live in relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ. We have to keep following Jesus, says Peter, because God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son have given us everything we need and have done everything they can and will continue to do 
to help us stay faithful to Christ. We are, some of you, I know, are, are looking at a, a 2023 that may be filled with all sorts of uncertainty. Jobs may be at risk. Relationships may be on the edge. Health may be an issue. And you're wondering, is this what I get as my reward for following Christ? And Peter would answer that question by saying, it's not a reward. It's a consequence of following Jesus. That we have this sense in which whether we realize it or not, even if we are the most reformed or theologically astute people in the room, we have at times fallen prey to a kind of prosperity thinking. That because I follow Jesus, because I believe in him, I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to have lots of money. And people, doggone it, are going to like me. But it ain't necessarily so. But because it ain't necessarily so, doesn't mean that God has abandoned you, or God is untrue to his word, or God has somehow isolated you as the lone exception to his grace. It simply means that like Jesus Christ, who uh, John read it to us from our confession time, in 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus is our example of what it means to suffer well. And to put our trust in God. Because it's through Christ's obedience, through his suffering in our place, that we are able to die to sin and live to righteousness. So everything that God does here, everything that we are called to do, Christ has done for us, and his spirit empowers us to do through us. And as I said before, there's a great similarity between what Peter says here in this opening part of his letter and what Paul says in Ephesians, which leads me to think that at some point, you remember in Galatians 2, Paul recalls an encounter that he has with Peter. And I'm just wondering if the two of them, you know, they must have sat down and compared notes because there's a lot of similarity between what Paul says in Ephesians and here in 1 Peter. Just remember this. Everything we do for Jesus is a result of everything he's done for us. We obey we obey Jesus because Jesus obeyed his Father. We follow Jesus because Jesus followed God the Holy Spirit. We trust Jesus because he trusted God the Father and the Spirit. This is, you've heard me refer to this before as, as the, the relationship between the indicative and the imperative. The indicative, the way it is. The imperative, the way it needs to be. The, the way it is determines the way that we live. Everything God did for us, everything Jesus did for us on the cross, everything he did by means of his resurrection, everything he did by means of his ascension and sending us the spirit, everything he does makes it possible to do what he commands us to do. God wants us then to follow Jesus, and he uses, Peter does in this letter, a simple word, a simple phrase to remind us how important it is to have this quality about us as we follow Christ. And the phrase is this, be sober-minded. He repeats it. He says it in 113, and he repeats it twice more in a letter. That's significant because the repetition of it is, is deliberate. In 113, Peter says, preparing your mind for actions and being sober-minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A sober-minded man, then, avoids physical drunkenness and disorderly thinking. He puts his confidence in the promises of Christ. A sober-minded woman thinks clearly. She acts decisively. She puts her confidence in God by praying to him in Jesus' name. Sober-minded Christians are always alert against being deceived by the devil's schemes. That's a long introduction to the points that I'm going to make. Because I want to modify my initial premise. Let's make it a resolution that in 2023, we resolve to be sober-minded as we follow Jesus because we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Let, let's make that a resolution, a resolution that we can keep, not because we have the power in ourselves to keep it, but because God has given us his spirit, his word, and his church, and the example of his son and the continual power of his resurrection to help us keep it. So we resolved, if you want to flesh out the points as we move into the rest of the, the sermon, that we resolve to be sober-minded because God has adopted us into his family. We resolve to be sober-minded because the Holy Spirit has confirmed our adoption. We resolve to be sober-minded so we can practice what Jesus preaches. And we resolve to be sober-minded so that grace and peace may be multiplied to us. Sober-minded, being able to think clearly, to, to be able, in, the, in obedience to Christ, take control of our thoughts and calm our heart, breathe, and then act. Remember, too, this is Peter who is in the boat in Mark 4. Mark 4, Peter and the other disciples are in the boat, and there's a great storm on the sea. And Peter, along with the other disciples, there's Jesus sleeping in the stern of the boat on a cushion. He's a guest. He's not a fisherman. He's not a professional sailor. He's just sleeping on the cushion. And in the midst of the storm, Peter and the other disciples, the other apostles, turned to him and said, Jesus, don't you care that we drown? That's what a, a non-sober-minded person says. And Jesus stands up, right, looks at the wind and the waves, and in, it's not polite language in, polite, in mixed company to say, but he essentially he says to the wind and waves, shut up and stay shut up. At that moment, drawing on that lesson years later, Peter writes, here's why you can stay sober-minded. Because you worship the one who is able with a word of his mouth to command the elements to be quiet. So if you worship and serve a God like that, and you're facing tumultuous circumstances that are threatening and scary and frightening, you have the recourse to go to the one who has the power to say, be quiet, stay quiet, and everything is calm. A sober-minded person thinks like that.
takes control of their thoughts because Christ is in control of all things. We resolve to be sober-minded because God has adopted us into his family. Peter says that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That foreknowledge doesn't, doesn't mean that God knows who will choose him. It refers to his absolute sovereignty in planning and carrying out his will to save a sinful humanity. So in other words, moving from the theological to the practical, because God from the foundation of the world has chosen us to be his children in Christ, he knew where to find us in order to save us, and he knows exactly where we are when we find ourselves in situations where we are doubting his love, his faithfulness, his mercy, and his grace. In fact, he has placed us in that exact spot. It was no accident that Peter and the apostles were in that boat with Jesus when the storm came. He knew exactly what was happening and what was going to happen. So wherever you are, whatever circumstance you're in, you are there by God's foreordained plan. You are there by his foreknowledge. There is great comfort in that. He chose to save us before we were ever born. We know this because this is confirmed by what Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, referring to God's foreknowledge in that section. Paul writes, God, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So that means back in Genesis 1, before God says, let there be light, you and I were chosen by God to believe in Christ. Just let that sink in. Before he sets the world in place, he chose us. Not for anything or any goodness in us, but simply because of his grace. So if that's true, and it is, a sober-minded person takes their position squarely on that guarantee certainty that if God chose us, he's not going to let us go, regardless what happens to us. Because he has entered into a relationship with us. That's what the word foreknowledge implies. In his commentary on this verse, Thomas Schreiner adds this very helpful insight. He says the word know in Hebrew often refers to God's covenantal love bestowed upon his people. Therefore, when Peter said that his believers are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he emphasized God's sovereignty and initiative in salvation. Believers are elect because God the Father has, sent, has set his covenantal affection on them. So despite being treated as outcasts, we are and always will be God's people. Every parent knows this intuitively. Like, my children are my children, regardless of what they do. If you have been a prodigal child, and your parents continue to love you, pray for you, welcome you, receive you, feed you, clothe you, pray for you, are concerned about your welfare, they are doing it 
because they have set their covenantal affection upon you simply by the virtue of the fact that you were born into their family. You, you have been spawned from their very union. And there's a connection and a bond there that nothing can break or sever. Not our disobedience, not our rebellion, not our cursing, not anything. The same thing is true for God. So Paul means, again, in Romans 8, he says, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. What is there? Nothing. That if God has set his covenantal affection upon us, if he has determined from before the world even was created to love us and to make us his own, nothing, nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever alienate us from him. Again, Paul says it well in Ephesians 1.5, that in love, God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So that nothing we feel, nothing we think, can alter the fact that God has set his covenantal affection upon us. Remember, too, this is Peter. Denies Jesus three times. After swearing that he won't. That he was willing to die for Jesus. And at the end of John's gospel, Jesus restores him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? By the third time, Peter gets it. So you can curse God, if you will, if you want to, in the midst of your circumstance, but it's not going to change the fact that he has set his covenantal affection on you. Because the moment that we confess faith in Christ, God adopts us into his family. And that act of adoption is what makes us exiles from the surrounding culture. Uh, we may not be driven from our jobs. We may not be driven from our families or, or even from our state. But we feel the disconnect. And we're supposed to feel a disconnect. When you watch the news, when you see what's going on in government, when you see what's happening in our culture and our society, and you say, that doesn't feel right. That's not right. Yes, you're sensing that sense of alienation and exile. We feel it because we're exiles and because we're, we are pilgrims who are looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. At the same time, however, that does not excuse us from having to love our neighbor as ourselves. It does not excuse us from being salt and light. On the contrary, because God has given us everything we need to live for him and to follow Christ, and since our salvation is secure, we must resolve not only to continue to love our neighbor, but to resolve to do the most good for the most people for as long as we live. We must try our best with the help of God to tell others about what God has done and continues to do through the preaching of the gospel, through the demonstration of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because no matter what other people do, we still are responsible for loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. No matter how many times others may sin against us, may mistreat us, may malign us, may cancel us, we have to forgive them. It takes courage to do that. It takes strength to do that. It takes grace to do that. It takes the power of the Spirit to do that. And thankfully, all of that comes through the Holy Spirit, which is the, the second point. We resolve to be sober-minded because the Holy Spirit has confirmed our adoption. Peter says we've been chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, in order to understand what he's talking about here, 
You have to step back a moment again and go back to something Paul says in Ephesians 1. In verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1, Paul writes, writing about the Holy Spirit, that in Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory, that is the, the glory of Jesus Christ. So in addition to guaranteeing our inheritance, which is something Paul, Peter is going to refer to in the very next paragraph, the Spirit guarantees and confirms our adoption as God's sons and daughters. It's because we've been sealed with the Spirit that we feel disconnected from our culture. It's because we've received the Spirit that Christ has sent us out into the world as salt and light to experience not only the joy and the blessedness of, of seeing and others come to faith in Christ through our sharing of the gospel, but also to rejoice when in fact there are times when we have to suffer because of that same gospel. It's because we have the Spirit that we feel disconnected from our culture. It's because we have the Spirit that we no longer follow the Spirit of this age. That we are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of God. We are His adopted heirs through faith in Christ. One of my favorite passages. Whenever I find myself wavering, when I'm whining <laughs> and just wondering what God is doing. And does he really love me? Romans 8, 5, 15 through 17 helps quiet those fears. They are, for me, Romans 8, 15 and 17, they are Jesus standing up in the boat, telling the wind and the waves to shut up and stay shut up because this is what Paul writes. You did not receive the spirit of slavery leaning again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ. And then here's the line. If indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. That last part is worth noting. Paul could have stopped as soon as he wrote, and also fellow heirs with Christ. And we were all said, oh, that's wonderful. What a nice sentiment. I am so encouraged. And then he adds, if indeed we suffer with him. That last part is worth noting because inasmuch as the Spirit confirms our adoption, he also helps us to trust God whenever we are disenfranchised, whenever we are discriminated against, and whenever we are mistreated. We don't like it. But the reality is, you read your Bible, we learn how to be holy through the things that we endure. We learn what it means to follow Christ best when life is difficult and we suffer. Whatever that suffering entails, whether it's out-and-out -out discrimination or an illness or some kind of financial pressure or anxiety, then in addition to confirming our adoption, the work of the Spirit is to make us more and more holy. So there are times in the, in the evening when, the, when you've wrestled with the kids all day and you feel like as, as if you are the worst parent in the world, that if the, the, the best-selling author of children and family books were living next door to you, they would use you as the example of how not to parent. 
or the, 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 the life coach would follow you around the office and use you as an example of what not to do, and you, you get on your knees or you cry in your bed out to God, help me, that's the Holy Spirit helping you know what it means to be holy. Because even Jesus learned discipline through the things that he suffered and cried out with weeping and with tears, so says the writer of Hebrews. We have this illusion, I've, I've said it before, I know I do, that we have this right somehow, as soon as we come to Christ, that I have a right not to suffer, not to go through any difficulty, not to have any pain or discomfort in my life. How foolish, how naive, how silly, how immature, how un-Christ-like. This is why we have to never stop following Christ, because it's in, the, in wrestling with those things. It's in crying out those kinds of prayers that we learn the grace and the mercy and tenderness of God. To understand that disconnect of being members and citizens of another kingdom, even though we are called to walk on this earth. Remember that we have been chosen for adoption as God's children, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that he has confirmed our adoption by giving us a spirit who guarantees our inheritance of life everlasting. And then there is the obedience of Jesus Christ himself, who though he was scorned by men and smitten by God, carried our sins to the cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. We resolve to be sober-minded so that we can practice what Jesus preaches. We've been chosen, says Peter, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You think when you're hired for a job, you have a responsibility to, the work, to do the work that's expected of you. When you're admitted to college or university, it's expected you will do the work required to earn your degree. When you get married, you say, I do, it's expected that you will fulfill the responsibilities of a husband or a wife. When you come to Jesus Christ and are saved by grace through faith and the Holy Spirit confirms your adoption, it is expected that we will practice what Jesus preaches. That's why we have been chosen. Salvation is more than just believing in Jesus and then going to heaven when we die. It demands putting that faith into action. It's what Paul refers to as the obedience of faith, or as I have said it, practicing what Jesus preaches. And the order is important. We're saved, then we obey. We, we like to flip it around. God, let me show you how good I am. God, let me show you how moral and righteous I am. That was a Pharisee's problem. We can easily fall into that. But what God does through Christ is let me make you good through the righteousness and goodness of my son. Then you'll be able to obey me. Let me make you holy through the holiness of Christ. Then you can live a holy life. Then you can do everything that I require of you. That's what it means to be part of this obedience to Christ. And the sprinkling of his blood just, just seals the deal. It's that second witness. This is a, an incident, this reference comes right out of uh, the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. In Exodus uh, 24, Moses uh, confirms God's covenant with the people of Israel. He slaughters a, a couple of oxen, sprinkles their blood on the altar. The people pledge their obedience to God. And then what does Moses do? He takes some of the blood of that oxen and then he sprinkles it on them. Signifying, he says, that this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. This covenant which is sealed with blood. 
such that if you disobey this covenant, what happened to these animals will happen to you. Well, under the new covenant, guess whose blood is sprinkled on us, whose blood is shed for us, whose blood covers the fact that even when we are disobedient to God, his obedience erases our own disobedience. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is telling his readers, no matter what happens to you, no matter what you think, no matter what you feel, your relationship with God is one of an everlasting, eternal covenant that cannot be broken. Because you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You've been set apart, which is what in sanctification of the Spirit means. You've been set apart for the purpose of following Him. How? By living in obedience to Christ, covered forever by His blood, the blood of an eternal covenant, established between God the Father and God the Son. It's because God has chosen us, says Peter, that we practice what Jesus preaches. And it's the Holy Spirit that helps us do that and to be his disciple. And really, when you come down to what is discipleship, other than submitting to Christ how we spend our time, submitting to Christ how we spend our money, submitting to Christ how we make our decisions. And then Peter ends this section by simply saying, we resolve to be sober-minded so that grace and peace may be multiplied to us. I won't spend much time on this. Grace, as we know, is the unearned favor of God. It's why we have been chosen to follow Christ. It's why we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. It's why we can have peace with God through Christ. The world is not, by nature, a gracious place. You have to earn everything in this life. So says the world. You want the corner office? You work hard. You sacrifice. You take time away from your family, away from other pursuits for that one goal. You want to rise in your career? You want to be, you want to be good at this? You sacrifice all of those things. It's earned. It's not given to you. God does the very opposite. We don't deserve the corner office. We don't deserve the large bank account. We don't deserve the family, the house. We don't deserve any of that. But he gives it to us. He lavishes it upon us because of his grace. We don't deserve to be loved by him, but he loves us nonetheless because he's a good and gracious God. And then on top of that, not only does he lavish that unearned favor, but then he fills us with peace. Peter being Jewish, in his mind, the word peace is a Hebrew word shalom, this overwhelming sense of well-being. It's peace with God, it's peace within ourselves. It's peace with the fact that we have been separated from the world in order to follow God through trust in Christ. And the more that we resolve to follow Jesus, the more that we can expect God to fill us with grace and peace and trusting in him. I don't make many resolutions, if any, every new year, but one thing I do do throughout the year is Maintain a, a devotional life with, with God. Read my Bible, and I have other kinds of uh, material that I read. One of them I've, was given to me years and years ago by a dear friend when I was working at a, uh, as a janitor of a church in Brooklyn. Um, some of you may know, it's a devotional by uh, Oswald Chambers called My Utmost for His Highest. And so I, every, every year I'm always sure to read the last entry on December 31st, and the first entry for January 1st, and I, you know, I read it the rest of the year as well, but the January 1st one is one I want to leave you with, and it's up on the screen. My determination is to be my utmost for his highest, 
To get there is a question of will, not of debate, nor of reasoning, but a surrender of will. An absolute and irrevocable surrender on that point. Shut out every other consideration and keep yourself before God for this one thing only. My utmost for his highest. I am determined to be absolutely and entirely for him and for him alone. That's our resolution that we resolve in 2023 and by God's grace and by his will for the rest of our lives to be sober-minded as we follow Jesus Christ because we have been chosen for that very exercise, that very discipline according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You think about that. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this glorious letter. We thank you for the grace and peace that come to us through trusting in you. We pray, Lord God, for the strength, the courage, and the fidelity to maintain our faithfulness to Christ as he is ever faithful to us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.